Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we talk with Wei Liang, Professor of International Policy Studies at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Naturally, most of our discussions centered around foreign policy topics involving the U.S. and China, starting with the Belt and Road Initiative and whether recent negative sentiments towards it or the impact of COVID has slowed down their progress. We also talk extensively about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and whether it is comparable to the IMF or World Bank and how it has performed over its five-year history to date. I also ask Wei to weigh in on the growing isolationist nature of the U.S. and her opinion on why we have such a hard time in the West trusting the intentions of some of the countries in the East. Enjoy. Increasingly, the trend is uh, because of the U.S. foreign policy is trying to decouple from China. That has made it a real challenge for a large number of the countries. They, it seems like they have to take sides. For example, they have to make decisions on if they want to allow 5G, you know, Huawei, to be the, the infrastructure, the network provider in their country. So increasingly, those are the decisions they have to make. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Wei, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start with the One Belt, One Road initiative. Could you help bring our audience up to speed on what's been happening with it lately? And then give us a quick update on how the Belt and Road Initiative fits in with China's broader plans for growing their influence in global economic institutions. Sure. I will start by providing some background. The uh, One Belt, One Road Initiative, now it has been changed. The name has been changed to Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. It was first announced in 2013 by President Xi Jinping, and the plan was to connect Asia, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, a vast number of the logistics and transport network. So it has involved two parts. The belt part is spanning from China to the east, the west part, the northwest part of China, to connect with the Asia and the, the Central Asia and the, all the way to Europe. The road refers to the uh, 21st century maritime Silk Road that will connect China through the Southeast Asia, South China Sea, the Indian Ocean to Middle East and Africa. So as you can uh, tell from this very ambitious plan, China is trying to connect with 
the regions that China didn't really have lots of connections economically, politically in the past, but also China is trying to bypass the influence of the United States and uh, the, also the, uh, the sphere of influence of the United States by going through uh, pretty much the backyard of Russia and India. And how does it all fit in with their broader plans? This is already broad and it's evolving. So I'm sure when you know the initiative was first announced at that time, the Chinese leaders didn't really have a very clear plan. You know how to proceed and uh, what to uh, be included. Even until today, this is, has been called by some scholars as a branding effort because there is no clear definition who should be uh, included. What kind of projects should be uh, labeled as a BRI projects? So as a result, we have seen a very different statistics in terms of the number of the countries that have been involved, the number of the projects that has been counted as a BRI projects, and also it has been changing all the time. And what we do know is that the Chinese government is really trying to make it uh, a vague concept because they want to make it open and inclusive. And uh, until today, what we know for sure is that uh, the U.S. is not part of it. But other than that, it seems like the Chinese government is trying to welcome all other countries to participate. By today, already more than 120 countries, they have signed some kind of collaborative agreement with the Chinese government on the BRI. So it's uh, uh, way beyond the initial, uh, this ancient uh, map of the Silk Road. There has been some recent negative sentiment on China and, you know, with regards to the BRI. Has it, has, has any of the negative sentiment on China affected the country's plans for the BRI, especially through COVID and post-COVID? Totally. I think from its very start, and uh, this uh, initiative has been very controversial to the outside world, partly because other countries don't know what uh, China's intention is, and partly because uh, they don't know the scope and uh, also, you know, the concrete plans of China and uh, also what kind of goals China wants to achieve through the BRI. So I think that has brought lots of skepticism. And uh, the other part of it is that China is trying to step into, as I mentioned earlier, is trying to step into the, uh, the sphere of uh, influence of other countries. So for example, India has been very skeptical, like or Russia, China, it took China a long while to negotiate with Russia how to uh, make the BRI projects going through the Central Asia, uh, for example, building the railroad uh, from China to the Europe through Kazakhstan, and what kind of role China will play and what kind of impact this kind of a BRI projects will have on the region, especially will it go against Russia's own plan, Euro-Asia integration. So I think that is part of the controversy. And another part of it is the way China's been doing the BRI projects, because China is still a developing country, as the Chinese government, you know, has always insisted. China has its own unique approach to conduct those projects 
And uh, when they implement the projects, can they really meet the international standards, the social, environmental, and other you know areas that uh, will have a profound impact on the whole the whole country? Mm. And uh, so I think that's another part of the controversy. And uh, the third one is that has been raised very widely uh, started from an Indian scholar, but has been used by uh, the U.S. Uh, State Secretary as well, which is to talk about this debt trap diplomacy. Like if China's trying to lend so much money to those developing countries, and those developing countries have already been deeply in debt. So how can we make sure they can uh, pay back, and how can we make sure they have the, the the sustainable, you know, the debt sustainability? So those are all the issues. Especially if what if they cannot pay back, then what will be the following steps taken by China? Will China try to ask those countries to pay back with their resources, the, or will China try to acquire the strategic ports? Uh, or as other assets in the countries, or will China put lots of pressures uh, to make those countries to change their foreign policy to support China globally? So what will China do if those countries cannot pay back? I think that has uh, become an increasingly important question to many other countries, especially the Western countries, the U.S., the European Union, they have raised lots of skepticism or they have raised lots of concerns about what, you know, what China's trying to do, how China's trying to do it. There is a distinct lack of trust, I think, globally. And it's That's right. between the big players, right? The U.S., Russia, China, even India, you know, no, no, nobody trusts each other. Nobody trusts that each other's intentions are pure and whole, right? And as humans, we're so fallible with, with greed and we want more power, we want more money, we want more influence. And I think that the skepticism because of the you know and there's also these massive communication and culture language barriers between everybody as well so we're always you know one eye kind of half eye you know kept on on everybody because of this and i think that's where the you know just just not really sure we we are always feeling threatened by somebody expanding their reach out and i mean do you think that some of this could be fueled by what's been going on in hong kong Totally. I, I totally agree with uh, what you have said, that uh, there is this uh, profound mistrust. Partly it's because, you know, China's trying to reach out to the regions far away. And partly it's because throughout the history, especially after the end of the Second World War, what we have seen is that uh, the donor countries or the, the countries providing the capitals are have always been the Western countries. So this is actually the first time in modern history that we have seen a developing country, a non-Western country is trying to provide capital to help the, with the development projects. So because it's brand new, uh, because it's uh, unprecedented, of course, that will add another layer of uh, skepticism. And uh, uh, going to your question about Hong Kong, I think the same thing because we've never heard about this concept of a one country, two systems. So uh, how would this work and how to prove 
it doesn't work. We don't have a standard in international relations theory, you know, to test. So that has created lots of anxiety what China is trying to do because no one actually understands this one country, two systems and, uh, you know, how effectively Beijing can implement, can keep its promise. To what extent to keep its promise of maintaining the two systems? Yeah, I agree. It's a, it, everything is very difficult, and I think we just don't understand enough. And it, because the cultural divides can be so big, it it's just very difficult for anybody on either side to really truly understand what's going on, why it's going on. We only look at everything through our own cultural lens, and to be honest, the optics through those lenses are typically pretty awful. I have to say, if you, if you're, you know, if we're talking about international relation theory, the whole paradigm, the whole field of international relations is deeply embedded in the Western history and the Western countries' experience. So uh, you're right. The cultural differences, the historical background differences, are very much salient today. Let's move on and talk about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, okay? So if you could maybe first just tell us what is the Asian uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, how is it comparable to the IMF or the World Bank in, in its tactics or its ambitions? Sure. The AIIB, it was founded uh, by China in 2016. And uh, by definition, it's a multilateral development bank. So it will finance development projects. But uh, the focus of this particular AIIB is to focus on financing the development projects infrastructure. So building the railways, building the telecommunication uh, infrastructure. So uh, the comparable institutions that uh, we are uh, more familiar with are the Asian Development Bank that was uh, founded by the U.S. and Japan together. And uh, globally, the multilateral development bank is the World Bank. And of course, other regions, they all have their own regional development banks. So in other words, the AIIB, again, you know, the only similarity I will say is that with the BRI is that it has excluded the U.S. and the Japan. Of course, it's, it was not the intention of Beijing, at least uh, according to the official uh, statement, they welcomed the participation of those two countries, but the, the U.S. and the Japan decided not to join. And in fact, before it, its launching, the U.S. made a very explicit uh, pressure to other U.S. allies, especially Canada, Australia, and the European countries, UK, not to join, but they have all decided to join this AIIB. So different from the BRI, that I would argue is pretty much a Chinese government's uh, foreign policy initiative. The uh, AIIB has been set up as a multilateral institutions. So it's not, even though, you know, China sponsored the institution and its headquarters is currently in Beijing, but this is a, a multilateral development banks and its chapters, its, govern, its governance features, everything, you know, they tried to uh, copy the World Bank, the 
DB and other existing development banks. So they want to be able to live up with uh, the highest standards in a multilateral development bank. It's, as you said, it was started in 2016. It's about four or five years old now. How has the member nations feedback been um, now that we're almost four or five years into this? And, and what are they saying? What is your opinion? Uh, would you say that it has delivered on its promises to its member nations thus far? I would say yes. Well, as you just pointed out, it's a still a very new institution. It's been like for five, year, five years. And uh, it has approved 78 projects, energy on transport, on telecommunication, and those infrastructure projects. And the, the biggest borrower from the AIIB is India. So this is another big differences between the AIB and the BRI because Indian doesn't even want to uh, participate in the BRI, but the Indian is the most, the, the largest borrower from the AIIB and has benefited greatly uh, from the, the development projects financed by the AIIB. So just to answer your question, I will say until today, I've seen that the AIIB is doing great because it has tried to live up with its promise that is to be compatible with the the highest uh, international standard and to maintain the good governance. And uh, they have adopted uh, many measures to uh, achieve this goal. For example, most of their, the majority of their employees have had the, uh, the working experiences in the World Bank, the ADB, and other multilateral development banks. So they can just bring in the, the standard protocol, you know, in terms of the project's uh, selection, approval, and implementation. And also, until today, the majority projects that the AIIB has been involved, they have worked co- to co-finance with uh, the ADB and uh, the World Bank. So they're not the sole lender and they have been a part of this uh, collaboration with the, the, the other multilateral uh, development banks. And that will also help ensure that the whole procedures, the process, uh, the due process will be you know, compliant. How have the Western countries reacted to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank? For example, we know that you know the UK and Germany applied to be members in it. The USA, on the other hand, did not apply. They roundly critiqued other Western nations who did and actually used influence to prevent countries from joining. Do you think any of these these actors mentioned in this scenario are regretting those decisions today? I wouldn't say they have regretted or not, but I will say uh, it has uh, never ended the domestic debate in the U.S. or in Japan the question, should the, uh, Japan join or should the U.S. join? And uh, the, for those who have uh, decided not to join, and uh, they were based on the reason uh, that I have just mentioned, you know, if this is a, a China-sponsored multilateral development bank, then for sure China is not going to uh, be able to meet the international standard. It's not going to keep the transparency, good governance, uh, you know, as other Western 
sponsored Western dominated international institutions because only because one China is not capable of doing it. China has never had experience of uh, sponsoring any in you know multilateral uh, uh, institutions. And uh, two is that China doesn't really have the interest to do it because the track record of China is always trying to be pragmatic, flexible, and less legalized, less institutionalized. I think that was the, the worry of the United States and uh, Japan at the first place. It's really interesting. I've been, I, I am currently working on a paper, and uh, the research question was why the European Union countries decided to join back in 2016. So based on my research, I found out that the European Union has a very different approach from the U.S. on multilateralism. For example, you know, we, as we know, especially in recent years, the, the U.S. is kind of uh, more leaning towards the unilateralism, but the, the EU has been the strong supporter and advocate of multilateralism. So if they know, you know, this AIIB is intended to be a multilateral institution, they want to join. And more importantly, based on my interviews with those, you know, uh, in Brussels, actually what I have found out is that lots of the European Union members, they said the, the primary reason they wanted to join the AIIB as a founding member was to make sure that they were part of the negotiation at within the negotiation room so that they will they would be able to make sure you know all the the designing of the governance structures the chapters the you know the structure of the AIIB will be able to meet this international standard the only way to do it is from within not from outside so they want to be part of the parties in the negotiations so that they can actually influence uh, the direction at the, the very beginning when the institution was uh, still under the designing stage. So that was a main reason they chose to uh, participate. And of course, the economic benefit, you know, Asian, Asia Pacific in particular is, as we know, it's really one of the most dynamic regions economically, and it has lots of economic opportunities for the European countries and Canada, Australia. So they all want to be part of it mm -hmm. so that they can be part of the financing, you know, the investors to be able to get some economic benefits as well. Has COVID-19 changed how any of the Western countries are feeling about aligning with China via the AIIB? I wouldn't say uh, because COVID-19 is still ongoing, so it's kind of too early to make that assessment. Mm -hmm. But I will say increasingly the trend is uh, because of the U.S. foreign policy is trying to decouple from China. That has made it a real challenge for a large number of the countries. They, it seems like they have to take side. For example, they have to make decisions on if they want to allow 5G, you know, Huawei to be the, the infrastructure, the network provider in their country. So increasingly, those are the decisions they have to make. Broadly speaking, as the U.S. has become more isolationist in its behavior, and commitments over the past five plus years, how does China leadership and citizens view this trend? 
I think when we, I think this question will lead us uh, back to your first question on the BRI. The Chinese leader first announced the BRI, even domestically, lots of Chinese, the general public, the Chinese, the policy scholars, they couldn't understand why China wanted to, you know, abandon kind of uh, its uh, a long-standing policy to uh, focus on the uh, large, most powerful countries in the world to uh, maintain the best relationship possible with the U.S., EU, and Japan. Why China should bother to go to Central Asia, to uh, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, and uh, you know Africa? Not only they are far away, but also China uh, never had any kind of uh, uh, historical connection with those countries compared to other you know, uh, countries in the region. But also the, uh, those countries, many of them you know, are politically unstable. So when you talk about investment, the first thing you want to ask yourself is that, uh, can, how can you make sure you are going to have a positive return for your investment? Because what China has been trying to focus on is infrastructure investment, not only those investments are all the long-term investment, like 20 years, 25 years, 50 years. But also after you have built a real road, after you have built the stadium uh, or a highway, you cannot take it away with you. And so it's very different from uh, the other type of uh, the greenfield investment or you know, other types of the investment. It's hard for you to pull out of the the region that you're investing in with the investment the invested money with you so it's high risky region and high risky type of uh, investment that's what china has uh, chosen to do so lots of uh, uh, you know discussions in china why china you know doing the bri projects and but we waited until this year after the, actually starting from last year, 2019, after the outbreak of the U.S.-China trade war and after the COVID-19, lots of scholars, they have said, oh, finally I understand why, because China has to be prepared, you know, alternative, alternative market, mm-hmm. alternative trading partners, alternative regions to invest when China will be shut down or you know keep will be kept out of the U.S. market, European market. Huawei at least can sell their you know equipments in Africa or in Central Asia. What is China's ultimate goal here with these institutions? In the next few years, they are likely going to have the world's highest GDP totals. You know that's that's almost a certainty. But it doesn't seem like that's enough. Are they building a new Marshall Plan, and will they consider that to be successful uh, or finished? Well, this is a difficult question because uh, not only because uh, we are living in the middle of the crisis, but also because we really don't know uh, how deeply we are living in this crisis and how we can actually get out of it. How to get it out, uh, get out of it? Of course, ideally, the best way to get out of the, the current crisis is for the U.S. and China to work together. But uh, that is... Uh, 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 very difficult to achieve at this moment. And if the two largest economies, they are 
in the process of decoupling, that is definitely not a good news for a large number of the countries. Of course, in the short run, we have always talked about how uh, countries like Mexico and uh, Vietnam, they have benefited from the decoupling, from the relocation of the regional and the global supply chain when the companies the Western companies are moving out of China and they have to find another uh, country to relocate to manufacture. And oftentimes they will uh, choose Mexico or Vietnam. But that is, in my opinion, that is just in the short run, in the long run, this is uh, going to be very a big challenge to globalization to globalize the uh, economy because, uh, you know, seems like today when companies make the decision about where to get their inputs, where to get their raw materials, where to uh, manufacture and where, where to sell the products, they have to consider a lot on the, uh, the policy side, the political aspect. For example, they want to uh, look at how to uh, be able to comply with the government policy, what kind of components uh, they can sell to the Chinese company if they want to be able to, you know, export, uh, import back to the U.S. market. And the uh, same thing, the European companies, the uh, Japanese companies, South Korean companies, they have to also uh, be very careful about the policy impact, you know, in terms of the compliance, you know, how to do business with the U.S., how to do business with China. I think that has already, in, you know, significantly increased the transaction cost and other administrative costs of uh, the companies. So that is a bad thing in terms of uh, efficiency, in terms of globalization, because we are not able to go back to a new economic world where we have like two, two camps and the two sets of the supply chain and that I don't think is going to happen. So having said that, I almost feel like this is going to be really difficult for China to cope with because at the end of the day, when we talk about all these kind of economic challenges and difficulties, we also want to consider the security considerations. Being the U.S. allies, oftentimes those countries will have to sacrifice a little bit in terms of the economic efficiency in order to continue to maintain, you know, their political and security relationship with the United States. And we have seen that, you know, with Canada, with Japan, with UK is also currently revisiting its 5G policy to decide if they will allow Huawei to be a, a partial provider uh, of the equipment. So lots of countries are doing that because the U.S. has explicitly tried to uh, mix the economic activities with the security implications. And for example, U.S. government has told Poland, you know, if they are going to use the Huawei equipment, then, you know, U.S. will reconsider the decision if they're going to continue to have a military base there. So the world is getting really complicated. We're going to uh, see a lot more considerations, the policy debate, not based on, you know, the, the mere national interest, but based on geopolitics and the security considerations. 
If you were looking forward, what do you think is going to happen over the next three to five years, even just the relationship between China and the U.S., which seems to be just impacting everybody anyway? So let's just talk about that relationship. Where do you think that's going to go? And if we wanted to be incredibly optimistic, what do you think needs to happen for everybody to just grow up and start acting a little more maturely and try to get along? I think I don't know. I really don't. I wish I knew the answer, but I don't because it seems like the the decision to go tough on China in the U.S. is bipartisan consensus. So, which means that after, even after the November, even after the November election, we're not going to see a much difference regardless which party will win because domestically the consensus is that China has failed. China has failed the expectation of the United States when the U.S. decided to engage China economically, trying to include China into all the Bretton Woods international institutions and trying to do business with China to open its market for uh, Chinese products, but uh, China hasn't been able to deliver, uh, you know, what it uh, uh, promised. So uh, we have actually uh, uh, sensed a very strong sense of the disappointment uh, in Washington, D.C. That So I would say in the next uh, three to five years, it will be very difficult for the U.S. and China to be able to have a meaningful cooperation and to have a, a constructive dialogue. And the, the fundamental issue here is uh, something that you have pointed out, the profound uh, mistrust between the two countries. In my opinion, I think a lot of this goes back to the early days. Everything was friendly. A lot of manufacturing was happening in China, and everybody liked that. China you know, enjoyed the boom to the economy that it was providing, and the U.S., mostly you know, big business, was, was happy to be able to get goods at cheaper prices, and everything was somewhat hunky-dory. And then I think as the copying started to happen or the localizing as some would put it china was a little bit wild wild west or wild wild east about um ip protection and even just with you know borrowing disney characters and putting them on t-shirts yes i think definitely the ip protection is uh, one area that the chinese government should uh, uh, continue to work and uh, but I think uh, a deeper issue to me is really not about you know China lacks the R and D investment. No, China has uh, invested huge amount of money every year on the cutting edge technologies. That's why you know China now has all these leading companies. I think the bigger problem is that thirty years ago it was a happy relationship because China was uh, simply just uh, a a sweatshop, you know, uh, manufacturing for the Western markets. The investors would uh, go to China only because uh, China has a cheap laborers. But uh, things have changed 30 years later. Now, not only, you know, the trade relations are no longer that complementary, but also because, uh, you know, China can ex- manufacture and export the products that uh, 
are more capital intensive and technology intensive. So it's no longer selling the textile products in, in exchange for Boeing, but China also wants to build their own aircraft industry. So or EVs or you know high speed rails. I think that is the problem uh, because we have seen increasingly the competitive nature of uh, the bilateral economic relationship between. China and EU between China and the US. And that was not the case 30 years ago. And uh, the other part of the problem, uh, I would uh, argue, is uh, China's industrial policy because China has taken advantage of uh, the relatively free market in the West, but at the same time has kind of closed up its market for those key industries. For example, until today, Google, Facebook, you know, they cannot enter into the Chinese market. And another example is the credit card, Citibank, American Express. Even though China committed to open up its financial market upon its WTO entry, but China didn't do it until last year, the 2019 U.S.-China the bilateral uh, trade agreement. However, the problem today is that finally the Chinese government is allowing the American credit card companies, insurance companies to uh, fully operate in China, in Chinese market. But today, less than 5% of the Chinese consumers are using credit cards. They, they now all use the online pay, WeChat pay. Mm. So <laughs> credit card market is shrinking in China today. Wei Liang, she is the Professor of International Policy Studies at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, Make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.